Hello, and welcome to Apostolic Voice. I'm your host, Ryan French, and this is going to be a great episode. We have all kinds of fascinating things to talk about today. I'm going over a recent RyanAFrench.com article called The Narcissism of Knowing. It's short, but really interesting and helpful for our spiritual well-being. My wife, the lovely, talented, anointed, fun, incredibly amazing Taylor, is going to be joining me for a highly anticipated edition of Gross Good Great where we'll be taste testing and rating Krispy Kreme donut flavored jelly bellies. Someone has to suffer for the Lord, and we're willing to carry this burden for you. Also, I'll be answering five questions from listeners. I've picked five of the most common questions I've received over the past few weeks. They're really, really good questions, so you'll want to hear all of that. Originally, I started the blog at RyanAFrench.com specifically to answer questions that I was getting over and over again from people in my church. So the blog was just an easy way for me to answer a lot of people at the same time. I know that's a very introverted thing to do, but it is what it is at this point. And I'm unveiling my newest poem called The Glittering Edge of Truth. So don't go anywhere. covering my article, The Narcissism of Knowing, posted September 14th, 2021, a thought that struck me and I want to share it with you today. I I think it'll be helpful to you. In the age of Twitterisms where people ineffectively whittle truths down to grotesque snippets of useless information, it's significantly rare for a tweet to grab my attention, much less cause me to linger for hours and thoughts. So it took me off guard when I scrolled across a tweet from Kevin DeYoung, who is one of my favorite authors, despite our many theological differences. But this tweet stopped me mid-sip of Coke Zero. He said this, In our internet age, it is easy to be overwhelmed with burdens that only God is meant to carry. You can find him at at Rev Kev DeYoung. Admittedly, I'm a bit weird and prone to introspective fits of circular thought, but if you chew on DeYoung's tweet for just a minute, undoubtedly, you'll feel anxiety lift off your shoulders too, because it's profoundly satisfying to admit some burdens are too heavy for we finite humans to carry. Some loads are so enormous, only God can carry them. We live in the golden age of the internet with global this and global that. Our economy is global. Our food is global. Our goods are global. With the click of a button, we have access to worldwide information. And while much of this is excellent, with it comes worries that previous societies did not have. For example, take the love-hate relationship most of us have with social media. It gives us more unfettered access to daily information about other people than ever before. That steady stream of data can be nice, but it can also be stressful and worrisome. People often say our world has grown smaller, but the reality is that the world is just as big as it's ever been. However, our sphere of awareness has increased exponentially. 
This ever-growing sphere of awareness means our sphere of worry has grown and continues to grow at the same pace. New knowledge generates new anxieties from which we once had a measure of blissful ignorance. Psychologists recently began to notice a concerning pattern in their patients that ties into what we're talking about right now. Frequently, individuals who were and are otherwise healthy, seeking help for their anxiety, are suffering from worry, but they aren't sure what it is precisely that has them worried. In other words, they're anxious and they don't know why they're anxious. This trend has led some healthcare professionals to prescribe a temporary distancing from the news, the internet, smartphones, and social media. Interestingly, in most cases, this led to a dramatic decrease in reported anxiety. A quick Google search will tell you that most psychologists attribute this almost completely to social media, mainly because of the unhealthy comparison social media causes individuals to make either consciously or subconsciously. I think for some of us, we have a mindset of comparison that grips us when we're on social media and we don't even consciously recognize that it's happening. It's kind of under our radar, but it is there and it creates anxieties that we wouldn't have otherwise. For many people, when they distance themselves from social media, their happiness increases dramatically. But what What if there's more to this story? You probably don't need a statistic to tell you that stress and anxiety levels are at all-time highs, and it certainly isn't just because we're all comparing ourselves to someone else's Instagram. And I'm not anti-technology, nor do I look at the past with rose-colored glasses. Technology is just a tool that can be used for good and evil, and every past generation had its particular set of struggles and dangers. But you don't have to go too far back in history to find a time when people in general were far less neurotic and narcissistic for a sake of definition, we might could say self-absorbed. For the most part, People were consumed with the problems of their families and their local communities. Those problems were real and very concerning to be sure, but vast universal problems were only vague shadows on their radar screens. In my opinion, the rapid proliferation of modern information leaves the average person feeling helpless and hopelessly aware of problems beyond their ability to solve. And when they try to solve global problems, a significant disconnect from local reality occurs. Let me give you an example. It isn't uncommon to see local churches really trying to solve major water shortages on the other side of the world. That sort of social gospel works like a placebo. It triggers a temporary dopamine hit. And everyone wants to feel like they're making a global impact. Meanwhile, in their local communities... Their neighbors are still struggling in countless physical and spiritual ways. There's a disconnect happening. You see, global awareness can produce short-sightedness in our local area. Many people have settled for feeling, air quotes, like they've made a difference instead of actually making a difference. Flying into a third world country for a photo shoot is way different than the hard work of loving our actual neighbors. That disconnect alone is enough to cause all kinds of anxieties. The concept of being a world changer is alluring. It almost makes Jesus' call to love our neighbors sound a little short-sighted. 
But Jesus gave us achievable goals that if followed do change the world, literally. For a good portion of my life, I genuinely longed for the ability to know the future. At the very least, I really wanted to know the details of my future. The tension of not knowing how certain things would turn out left me feeling frustrated with God. In those days, much of my prayer life revolved around asking God to reveal things to me. I arrogantly, or maybe I could say immaturely assumed that knowing would give me confidence. God never answered those prayers, and I'm glad he didn't. If past Ryan had known some of the things future Ryan would have to go through, he would have run away kicking and screaming. I look back on those times and shake my head in amazement. Now I understand that only God can handle knowing the future with all its twists and turns. It was incredibly narcissistic of me to long for something I couldn't have managed. I'm at peace with not knowing the future because I know God knows, and that's enough for me. Oddly enough, that brings us full circle back to the little tweet that started this whole thought process. In our internet age, it's easy to be overwhelmed with burdens that only God is meant to carry. How often do we narcissistically worry about things we can't fix? We have so much knowledge and so little power. My worry won't fix anything. Just knowing about a whole lot of issues and problems won't change a thing. But I can pray. I can lay all these burdens down at God's feet and trust that he knows what he's doing. And he does. He was the solution long before there was a problem. And he was the answer long before the question was asked. looking forward to this for a while now. I'm going over five questions that have been submitted by listeners and readers alike. And really, this is a conglomeration of questions that have been asked over and over again. We'll do this. We'll do this again very soon because it's not possible for me to try to go through all the questions at the same time. Uh, but this is very fun. I'm not going to give names out. I don't know if some people might would be embarrassed to have their name mentioned. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give names out of who submitted these questions. But here here's the first one. And I've had this particular question certainly over the past two years, over and over again. And it goes something like this How should I view going to church when a threat or danger is at hand? I think this question is probably directly related to COVID in some way, and I understand that. We all know there's been a lot of fear swirling around because of COVID and also a lot of controversy. Sadly, a lot of divisive controversy within the church or between churches. Some pastors have chosen to approach COVID one way and others have approached it another way. Some pastors have have said, well, bless God, we're going to have church no matter what. Other pastors have said, we're going to shut down no matter what. And then there's been kind of a, a mixture of all of the in-between. 
it's relevant to note that there have been studies that say 56% of Christians, now I pray this is not including apostolic Christians, but 56% of Christians say they have no desire to go back to church once COVID is fully, fully gone because they, they have found that they enjoy uh, just doing online services and things of that nature. So this is very concerning to me as a pastor and as a Christian. It's, this is, doesn't bode well for the future of Christianity. Now, I want to I take us to Hebrews chapter 10 to answer this question. It's a nuanced question. I do realize that we have an obligation to be careful. I think that the average pastor has agonized over how to protect his flock, how to care for them. I know in our church, we've had seasons where we've had to, had to cancel services and we didn't want to do it. And we do it for the absolute shortest amount of time that we possibly can and, and still feel like we did the right thing. Having said that, I do worry that we will lose sight of what it means to have faith, of what it means to be faithful, and the importance of being a part of the body of Christ. Now, I want to go to Hebrews 10, and I'm not going to just jump to forsake not the assembling of ourselves together. I I know that that would just be an easy soundbite to throw out there, but I want to look at the entire context of that verse. This is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 22 through 27. And I also want to put the context here. If you study the early church, if you study the book of Acts, and and of course, the life of the apostle Paul, who I believe is the writer of Hebrews, even though that's disputed, but I believe it was Paul, you'll find that the early church gathered and they were often in great danger. They were beaten for preaching the gospel. They were dragged out of the synagogues. At one point, Paul was literally stoned to death and then came back to life. So, the gathering together of themselves was not, it was not a simple thing for the early church. And I think that matters when you're reading something that Paul wrote like this because Paul factored in danger when, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, he exhorted us to forsake not the assembling together of ourselves. In fact, the American church, that's probably uh, the majority of us listening, and, and for all the international listeners out there, even I include you, although some of you uh, might might be an exception to this. You might be in a dangerous area, and I, I pray for you, and I pray that God protects you, and you would understand this better than anyone. But for the American church, we really know nothing of what it means to actually be in danger when we gather together. For example, there are so many reports out of China over the years of churches that had gathered and soldiers came in and just started shooting into the crowd. Well, does that mean because of danger, there should never be a gathering of the church? I, I don't think that's what, I don't think that's what God would want. And I don't believe that's what the apostles would have instructed us to do. So let's look at Hebrews 10, 22. It says this, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. So 
We're coming to the verse that you would expect to hear me quoting, but I wanted to give you this preamble to verse 25 because Paul is really talking about our daily walk with God and how to walk in holiness, how to have purity, how to hold fast unwaveringly to our faith, how to keep the faith, essentially, how to not stumble and fall. And then he factors in the importance that we we are called to provoke one another to love and to do right. So Paul is essentially saying, as he said many other times, we're the body of Christ. We need one another to grow. We need one another to be healthy. We need one another to be strong. We need one another to remain faithful. We need one another so that we can hold on to our faith because there might be days when my faith is weak and your faith is strong and you need to lift me up. And then there might be a day where where your faith is weak and my faith is strong and I need to lift you up. That's what it means to be a part of the church, the body of Christ. So then in that context, in verse 25, Paul said this, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, catch this, as the manner of some is. So right there in the early church, we see there was a controversy taking place where there were people who were forsaking the assembling together of themselves. Well, I can just stay home. I can do that. I can, I can serve the Lord all by myself. I don't need the church. I don't need, I don't need the saints. I don't need I, just me and Jesus. So there was already this mindset happening in the early church. So he said, uh, don't, don't listen to those people. Don't follow their example. Listen to what I'm saying not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, but exhorting one another. We've got to preach to one another. We've got to encourage one another. Sometimes we have to convict one another. And this is all part of the strengthening process. And we do it. We can only truly do it by being together. And then he adds this on, which I think is so powerful. And it shows the inspiration of the Holy Ghost on him. He said, and so much the more, as ye see the day approaching. Now he's talking about the coming of the Lord. He's talking about the rapture. So as you see that the end is drawing near, you should be gathering together more and not less. Verse 26, for if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. Now, verse 26, I think is worthy of a whole session just trying to break down what it means when Paul says there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. Verse 27, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversary. So in this context, Paul is saying we have to keep assembling and we need to do it more and more the darker the world gets because the only way we're going to be able to overcome sin and overcome carnality and hang on to the knowledge of truth is by exhorting one another, by encouraging one another. All of this is in the context of the importance of the church being the church, being the family, and actually being together. Having said that, the Bible does not say, thou shalt meet every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Tuesday at 7.30, every Wednesday at 7.30, every Thursday at 845. We don't have specific time frames. So it's left to a pastor's discretion, his prayerful, godly, 
biblical discretion to know for his congregation that the Lord has entrusted him with how often the church should gather. And certainly, as we can tell, we're living in the last days. And if we're really going to be obedient to this scripture, we should be assembling more. So to answer this question as directly as I can, I believe that we should submit to the shepherding of our local pastor. I believe that we should trust that our local pastor has our best interest at heart and has the mind and heart of God for that local congregation. Specifically, in relationship to COVID, I think that pastors have had to make many hard decisions. And I think many pastors have tried very hard to be compliant with government officials and to be careful to not put their flock in danger. However, I also see that many pastors have concerns, legitimate concerns, that there's overreach taking place where now there's a discrimination. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. In many places, there is still a moratorium on churches gathering. I was just in Nashville this weekend with the, on a field trip. My wife and I were with the kids on a, on a school field trip. And downtown Nashville was absolutely buzzing. The bars were packed. We didn't go in them, but we drove by them. The bars were absolutely packed. By the way, I was a little surprised at how, what a party atmosphere Nashville was. I was a little disappointed with that, but everything was packed. The Grand Ole Opry, we took a tour of the backstage. It was very interesting. Absolutely packed. People everywhere. Did a tour of the Ryman Auditorium. Packed. People everywhere. So, People are assembling right now. Fear is not keeping people from the bars. It's not keeping people from entertainment. It's not keeping people from sporting events. Maybe some, but the majority of people are doing what they want to do. And yet there's still a moratorium on, on churches. For example, in California, where there have been some of the strictest moratoriums on churches gathering They've allowed casinos to remain open, unhindered, absolutely packed casinos, but churches are not to gather. This is very dangerous. And I think, I think the real answer to the question is this. We should use wisdom. We should use caution. For example, if I knew, to use an extreme example, if I knew someone was going to shoot up the church a church shooter was going to come on a particular Sunday, and I knew that in advance, I would cancel the service and do everything I could to have that person arrested and all of that. However, if I was living under the constant threat that just some random person might come and shoot up my church, at some point we would have to have courage and say, we have to gather together. We have to have church regardless. We're not going to allow fear and intimidation to keep us from doing what God has called us to do and what we must do to be saved and to help one another remain saved and hold on to the truth. So using caution, using wisdom, those are all good. But if we're ruled by fear and that fear keeps us from being obedient to the word of the Lord. If we had to meet in secret, for example, as people do in communist nations, that would be fine if we have to meet underground. But whatever we have to do, 
we have to find a way to gather together and have church. All right, question number two. I get this all the time. What age is appropriate to start dating if I'm apostolic? Well, first of all, I've written extensively on this at ryanafrench.com. There's an article. It's always trending in the top 10 articles. You can find it on the side there. It's usually, uh, over the past two years, it's been the number one article. Thousands upon thousands, tens of thousands of people have, have read this article. Six dating standards for apostolic singles. So I really encourage you to go to ryanafrench.com right now and look at that article. Six dating standards for apostolic singles. But your specific question, what age is appropriate to start dating if I'm apostolic, uh, is, is a great question. I have a 14-year-old daughter, and so my instinct, my instinctive answer is 43. At 43, no. <laughs> so, basically, my view of dating is this. You should not date anyone without the intention of thinking of them as a potential spouse, someone that you could marry. So first of all, regardless of your age, if you're 53, 43, or 18, you shouldn't date anyone that you could not envision the possibility of being able to marry that person. So as an apostolic, you need to date someone who is an apostolic, who shares your faith, who shares the foundation of your faith. And so anything else would disqualify that person from being a potential for you to date them. And so, with that being the goal of dating, what is the goal of dating? The idea is courtship. I'm, I'm getting to know this person on a deeper level beyond just friendship to see, basically it's a vetting process, to see, is this someone that I could love and cherish and share my values with that will help me grow spiritually that will help me grow intellectually, that will also be faithful to me? Is this someone that I could raise children with, that I could love for the rest of my life, the rest of my life? Because this is a commitment. This is a godly commitment that you would be entering into if you were to marry that person. And so, the moment, let's say you are dating someone, I'm kind of going in circles here, but I'm going to get to the point. If you are dating someone, the moment you realize, I would not could not and should not marry this person. The very moment you realize that, you break up. You have you you do not continue in that relationship because the only purpose of dating, dating is not to cure loneliness. Dating is not to just give an opportunity to uh, do things that you might not otherwise do, go places you might not otherwise go. Dating is not just something that uh, you should do to fill your time. Dating is very specific, it's on purpose, and it should be very thoughtful, prayerful. It should be monitored, and by that I don't mean you have to have someone breathing down your neck every second, but dating should never be secretive. If dating is secretive, it's problematic. Dating is something that you should be talking to parents about, mentors about, friends about, pastor, your pastor, your pastor's wife. Dating is something that you should have your entire support system involved in so that they can give good input because sometimes when your emotions get stirred up, your support network can see things that you're not able to see because your emotions are blinding you. So you need to be willing to listen to that support network. With all of that said, because dating isn't casual, dating isn't just for fun, dating isn't just 
something that we do for social adventures. Dating is specific. I'm looking to this person to see, could I marry this person? Would God be pleased if I married this person? Would I grow spiritually if I married this person? Would I, or would I diminish spiritually if I married this person? So, with that in mind, with that being the purpose of dating, I don't believe that people should be dating. And when I say dating, I mean formally calling themselves boyfriend, girlfriend, exclusive to one another in relationship. That should never be happening until you're at an age where you could potentially get married within a reasonable amount of time. So, by that, I mean, if you're 13, you shouldn't be dating because even if you wait, 18 would be pretty young, but even if you waited until you were 18, that would be seven years of dating one person. And that's dangerous because long, long, long-term dating, just the nature of it, if you feel like you're in love, maybe you are in love. Uh, sometimes you think you are and you're not, it's infatuation, or maybe it's lust. If you're exclusive in a relationship with one single person for years and years and years and years, the potential and the likelihood that you're going to fail sexually is very high. The likelihood that you're going to be able to remain pure and physically pure is very unlikely if you're dating one person for years and years and years and years. And so with that said, I think when, when, you, when someone reaches the age of 15, 16, 17, they could have friends, maybe someone who... Uh, might be a little bit more than a friend, but it should all be done in a friend context. It should be done in a supervised way, in a highly public way, where maybe you could be very, very good friends, but everything you do is very open in public with other people. You're not, you're not alone together. You're not inviting opportunities where, where there could be a failure. You just guard yourself from that very, very carefully. All of this is, is detailed in Six Dating Standards for Apostolic Singles at RyanAFrench.com. I'm just throwing that out there again because I cover it in so much detail there. When you get to 18, now you're at a place where you could legally marry, but that doesn't mean that you should get married at 18. In fact, you probably shouldn't. There was a day when people matured faster, the world was different to be married at 18 or even 17 was more common. And those marriages often lasted and were very vibrant and strong, but it was a different world. In today's world, more than likely, you're not going to be mature enough to really think about getting married at 18. So even in that sense, you go in, whether you go into college or whatever it is you're doing, you should be very, very careful, always keeping in mind, I'm not going to date someone if I know they're not someone I could potentially marry. So you wouldn't even entertain the idea of dating someone that you couldn't potentially marry. If you do date someone at 18, you need to make sure that you're being very, very careful in, in, how, you, in how you do that. And the moment you realize, okay, this relationship is not going anywhere, it's not going to be healthy, you cut that relationship off and, and you trust the Lord. It would be better to trust the Lord and be lonely and trust God to bring the right person into your life than to make a mistake that you'll regret and that will hurt you long-term throughout the remainder of your life. So that's my views on uh, age appropriate to start dating. So with that being said, 
I really don't think anyone should be dating until they're at least 18, at least not calling it dating. And uh, even at 18, I think probably it needs to be um, very, very, very careful. You start getting to 20, you start getting, if you're in college, you start getting close to being done with college. Then you're starting to look at a, a time where it might be good and age appropriate. With that said, every person is different. So there's not you know, when it comes to 18, 22, 29, 30, 35, when you reach a certain point in life, when you reach adulthood, everyone matures differently. Some people at 20, I know many people right now who are 20 years old and they are not mature enough to be married. I know some 30-year-olds who are not mature enough to be married. And it is not a good idea to marry someone who is not mature enough to be married in the hopes that they'll mature during marriage. The likelihood of that happening is very low. Most of the time, people will, will actually digress in marriage. So, uh, if they're very immature, the likelihood is that they're going to get married and then, and then feel like they can actually let down even more. So, if they're an immature person already. So, you have to watch for those things. And, and I really think this is where the importance of having a very godly support structure matters. If your parents aren't godly, make sure you have a relationship with your pastor, your youth pastor, uh, a minister in your church, or a wise older couple in your church, someone that you can look to their marriage and say, that's a, that's a godly marriage. I want a marriage like that someday. Look to that person, ask for advice, keep them in the loop, and and they'll be able to give you good advice because you need that support structure, no matter what age you are, to help you make good decisions. Okay, the third question, number three. I'm sitting with a dying friend with stage four lung cancer. I would like a topic on learning to trust Jesus and faith. First of all, I'd like to express my very, very sincere sympathy over your friend. And I don't know uh, whether they're still living now and suffering with lung cancer or if they've passed on, but I want you to know that my heart, my heart breaks for you. And I also want to tell you and others who are in similar circumstances or have gone through similar circumstances, and we all have, I want to encourage you to go to ryanafrench.com and look up an article by my mother, Rebecca French, called Praising the Lord in All Things. Also, I brought her on this very podcast early on. It was episode number 16. It's called An Episode with My Mom. And she talks about this very subject at length. As I mentioned earlier, I had four open heart surgeries as a child. My mother went through that and my parents. Not long after my fourth open heart surgery when I was six years old, my middle brother Jonathan was diagnosed with leukemia. And he suffered with leukemia for many, many years. And it's a long story. The Lord healed him, thankfully, and touched his life. And we do believe in healing. So, whenever we go into a situation like this, we, we're pulled in a few different directions. Because, number one, we do know that God can heal. But God doesn't always heal. It's not always his will. And so, when we go into a tragic situation... The difficulty is learning how to trust God, learning how to trust that God has everything in control and that there is a reason for everything that is happening. 
and God does have a reason. Sometimes we pray for healing and God says no, and it breaks our heart, especially if they're unsaved because we grieve not only at the loss of that earthly friendship, but we grieve over their soul and we, we pray that God would save them and that God would allow them to have more time. But we don't know all of the answers and we're not able to. Having faith in these moments is really about having relationship with God. And I, I would encourage you to be comfortable asking God why. Now, when I say that, I'm, I'm not saying that we should shake our fist at heaven and, and lash out at God. But I believe that God is comfortable with us asking him why. I believe that God is comfortable with us saying, I don't understand, Lord. I need you to help me. I need you to speak to me. And I believe that God will. I believe that God will not only comfort you, but God will help you, help you to have clarity over why and how certain things happen, even tragedy. God will comfort you in those moments. But that's a very, very short, unsatisfying answer. And again, I encourage you, go read the article, Praising the Lord in All Things. Listen to the podcast with my mother. She does a much better, she's much more articulate in helping people in this way. So I encourage you to find that. Number four, here's a good Bible question. How many books will be open on Judgment Day? I only remember the Lamb's Book of Life, but as I've been reading, it says books. What are the books that will be opened? I was reading Daniel chapter 7. This is a great question. And we're going to read Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. And we're also going to go to the book of Revelation, which also uses books in the plural. And this is a very astute question. We have tremendous listeners and readers at Apostolic Voice. Very, very intelligent questions being asked here. Daniel 7, 9 through 10 says this, I beheld till the thrones were cast down and the ancient of days did sit whose garment was white as snow and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like a fiery flame and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him and 10,000s time 10,000 stood before him. The judgment was set and the books were opened. Now this is an Old Testament foreshadowing and prophecy of what is also mentioned in John's Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 through 15. I'm going to read that as well. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God and the books were opened. There it is, books, plural, were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And so some have theorized that perhaps there are three books because it says the books were opened and another was opened, which is the Lamb's book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Very important to remember that, according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. There it is again. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Okay, so we know for sure there are at least two sets of books at 
this judgment, both in Daniel 7 and in Revelation 20. There's at least two books, maybe three. The names of all believers are in the book of life. We sometimes refer to it as the Lamb's book of life. And the names of the earth dwellers, which is what Revelation 13.8 and 17.8 refers to them as, the names of the earth dwellers are not in the book of life. They're judged according to their works, which are recorded in the other books. And we know that no one can ever be saved by works alone. To be saved, to stand before God on judgment day based on our works alone is to be condemned because our works alone cannot save us. I want to zero in very quickly on uh, this phrase, they'll be judged according to what they had done. So the lives of all who do not obey the gospel and live according to God's word will be completely exposed before God in these books, these judgment books. Every selfish and defiant act and ungodly thought will be called into account. So essentially what we're reading in Daniel 7 and Revelation 20 is, by the way, an ancient idea of a very careful accounting, of, of writing a very careful record. The idea being that heaven keeps very, very clear records of the entirety of our lives. Everything we do, unless it has been washed away by the blood of the Lamb, unless it's been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. So when an unforgiven, unrepentant individual stands before the throne of judgment, every action they took in their life is going to be exposed. And it's written in the books. Even the secret sins, which, which it seemed no one knew about, will be brought to light and judged. All will be judged individually, not corporately. They're not going to be judged by their church or not going to be judged by their country or their city or their family. They're going to be judged individually for their works according to God's standards and principles. God's going to consider their motives, their opportunities, all of this. Now, that tells me there are going to be books of judgment. There's going to be the Lamb's book of life. Everyone listening and myself included, our prayer, our, our great goal in life is to find that our name has been written in the Lamb's book of life so that we can avoid judgment. That's what it means to be obedient to God's word. And so that's why I have, have often thought and there are some theologians who agree with me that it's very likely that one of the books, even though the scripture never explicitly tells us this, one of the books could very possibly be the Bible where God opens his word and compares our lives to his word. And then we're judged by that. Now, this judgment that takes place of believers and unbelievers and, and all of humanity from the beginning of time indicates that there is going to be differences in sentencing and degrees of punishment, but not in the duration. So let me give it to you this way. The torment of the lake of fire or hell is unquenchable and it's going to last forever. And I, I keep mentioning articles, but I'm just trying to refer you back to things that will give you more information. If you're interested, you can go to ryanafrench.com and you can look up the article called Everything You Need to Know About Hell. 
and uh, talk a lot about this in that particular article. I believe that everyone is going to be judged individually by God. So here's what that means. Yes, some are going to heaven, some are going to hell, but in hell, not everyone will have the same level of torment. I really believe that. I believe that God is going to be fair. I believe that God is going to take everything into account. And I believe that, for example, Hitler is not going to have the same judgment as Joe Blow, who lives next door and uh, was a sinner, but he certainly didn't send millions of people into death chambers. So there's going to be varying levels of judgment. It's not going to just be, because God is a judge. I had this thought come to my mind the other day. It, it, it really, really struck me. I heard a preacher talk about how pastors in many ways are like lawyers, where we give the law, we give the information to the people. We, we show them what the law says. We interact with the people and we interact with the law. But ultimately, we will all stand before God as the perfect judge. God is the judge. And so God is going to make, make judgment calls on each and every individual. I believe there are going to be levels in heaven as well. I don't know exactly what that means, and I don't know exactly what it's all going to look like, but I do know that over and over again, Scripture seems to indicate that uh, there's going to be varying levels of sentencing and degree of punishment in hell. However, for everyone who goes to hell, it will be terrible, and it will be eternal, but it's not going to be the same across the board, and I think I think that's good to know. So, to answer the original question, uh, books certainly refer to books of judgment that have all of the details recorded of every single individual's life who is not covered by the blood of the lamb. It's very possible that the word of God is going to be there as the ultimate rule book, the measuring stick, so to speak. And we know for certain that the Lamb's Book of Life is going to be there. And that is where the recorded names of all those who have been saved and been obedient to the gospel and the word of God, those names will be recorded there. So, uh, and we don't know exactly how many books of judgment there will be. It says books. So, I mean, it could be one book, two books, three books, four books. It could be a hundred books. We don't know, but we certainly know uh, there's going to be the Lamb's Book of Life, books of judgment, and very, very possibly the Word of God. All right, the, the last question that we're going to look at today comes from Genesis chapter 6, and this is a, <laughs> a great question. Are the sons of God fallen angels, and did they marry and reproduce with the women of the earth? If not, what is the explanation of those chapters? I know God's angels are spiritual and are unable to reproduce, as in Matthew, as Jesus said. Okay, so this is one of the most highly, hotly debated topics among theologians and just Christians in general, but I'll give my humble opinion on the subject. Basically, I believe there are two, some would argue four, possible answers to your question. First, and most plausibly, the sons of God mentioned in Genesis refer to the godly sons of Seth marrying the heathen daughters of Cain. God's covenant people are often referred to as God's sons. This view would explain why God eventually forbade the Israelites from marrying Canaanite women. You can find that in Exodus 34, 16 and Deuteronomy 7, 3. But 
it's a popular opinion that the sons of God mentioned in Genesis were fallen angels marrying mortal women and producing giants in their offspring. But it should be noted that the word Nephilim or giants, and this is very important, could mean giants in the sense of their fame, strength, or renown, and does not necessarily refer to actual giants in the sense of height. And there's some credence given to this idea in Peter's epistles and in the epistle of Jude. But even this view still leaves us with more questions than answers. If this view is even slightly correct, it's more accurate in my view to say it was demon-possessed men who married and produced wicked offspring rather than believing that literal angelic spiritual beings married and had children. As best we can tell from scripture, actual angels or demons are incapable of doing such a thing. Otherwise, Satan and all the fallen angels would most certainly be doing just that on a regular basis, trying to wreak havoc in this world. They don't do it. And that alone is enough to convince me that such a thing is impossible. All right. It's been a lot of fun answering these questions. Stick around. We're going to do good, gross, great, great, good, gross, whichever it is with the lovely Taylor, my wife. So don't go anywhere. privilege of welcoming my lovely, talented wife, Taylor, to the program for a segment of Gross Good Great. Hey, sweetheart. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for asking. Hey, this is really awesome. Do you have your jelly bellies close by? Yes, I have them right here in my hand. Awesome. Well, Talmadge is going to be incredibly jealous because he helped me pick these out. (laughs) I love it. We were, oh, where were we? Um, We were somewhere and and he saw these uh, Krispy Kreme donut flavored jelly bellies. Yeah. Okay. So we can both agree right off the bat that we love Krispy Kreme donuts, right? Yes. Okay. So, very much so, yeah. In fact, we may need to get some later after this episode. But anyway, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I also like Jelly Bellies. So, the the you would think that these would be amazing, right? But donut in in Jelly Belly form, who knows? So anything could right. happen here. Now, sweetheart, do you know the rules of gross good great? Do I need to go over them with you here? You should probably go over them with me. Okay, and I'm going to go over them also for the listeners as well, for any new listeners that we might have. Uh, The way it works is for the sake of the kingdom of the Lord, we try foods that we have never tried before. And someone has to do it. Someone has to suffer for the gospel like this. And (laughs) uh, we rate them and we let people know whether or not they are gross, good or great. 
one through, it's a standard one through 10 rating, one through three, if you give it a one, two, or three, that's gross. If you give it a four, five, six, or seven, that's good. So it's easier for things to fall in the good category. And if you give it an eight, nine, or 10, that means it's great. And it's very unusual for something to fall into the great category. Talmadge and Julia, they had some things fall in the, although last week we did have some things fall in the gross category, which was shocking, Mm -hmm. actually. The whole world was turned upside down by that revelation. But (laughs) um, so uh, I'm looking at it here. Now, what I did not realize until today is that this is not just the standard, because when I think of Krispy Kreme, can't we all agree that pretty much you just think of the original glazed, right? Right. Does mm-hmm. it, that's the only one I like. Yeah, that's the only one I like too. I think most people, I've tried a few of their other donuts and I wasn't real impressed with, with the other flavors. So, But in this particular pack, they have cinnamon apple filled. <laughs> so that is the brown ones that have because I know you don't have the package, babe. You you just have the jelly bellies there. Um, okay. So I'll that's so that's the uh, brown ones that have like darker brown speckles on them, almost like an egg, mm-hmm. which is kind of gross when you think of it like that. And then the really dark chocolatey looking ones are chocolate iced with sprinkles. Okay. Okay, so the dark brown is chocolate ice with sprinkles. Uh huh. And then just the regular brown. I don't know that I can tell the difference. Well, the original glazed ones are literally just, it's all just one color. You can kind of tell those because it's just like tan, like a light tan. Almost kind of orangey. Yeah. Mm hmm. Okay, so that's original. All right. So, so that's okay. original. And then. The pinkish looking ones are strawberry iced. So I'm going to separate right. those out because I don't think that, you know, a lot of times with jelly beans, you can just kind of throw them all in your mouth and it tastes good. But I'm thinking in this particular one, that's not going to be the case. Right. Yes, of course. And then there is also a glazed blueberry donut. And to be honest with you, the picture is ripped and I can't really tell which one that is, but I think it's the ones that have kind of like a white stripe in them, kind of like brown. And then it looks like almost cream or white coloring. Okay. All right. All right. right. I think I might like that. All right. So the three, the three flavors are, and then you have your original glaze. So, uh, cinnamon apple filled, strawberry iced, glazed blueberry, and chocolate iced with sprinkles. Hey, it's 110 calories per serving. Babe, take a guess how many jelly bellies it takes to be a serving. Five. Oh, wow. No, uh, 27. So you can eat 27 of these and it's only 110 calories. So oh, okay. basically <laughs> we're eating a, basically a health food today. And I do yes. apologize for that. Usually we're not big on health foods at uh, Apostolic Voice, but it is what it is at this point. So, all right. Well, I'm going to give you the honor, sweetheart, and let you go first. Which flavor are you going to try first? Okay. Um, maybe I'm going to do the really dark brown one. Okay. I'll do that with you. Now, we have to ask this question. Are we going to rate each one individually or are we going to just rate them overall? Uh, we should rate each one. Okay. All right. So I will now, the other rule is you have to chew into the microphone and, 
and you have to be very loud. You can't be polite like you usually are. You have to be very loud and boisterous because people need to know this is actually happening. Yes, I'm I'm naturally really quiet, so that right, you're hard. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to try this <laughs> chocolate flavored one with right, you. How many are you going to put in? How many are you going to put in your mouth? Uh, four hundred. Four hundred. No, four. I'm going to put four. Four in my mouth. Four. Okay. Well, I'm going to do. I'll do two. Okay. All right. Same time. All yeah. Right. Ready. Set. Go. Hmm. <laughs> so, you know, my first thought out loud is that it just tastes like a tootsie roll. It just tastes like kind of like a tootsie roll. Mm-hmm. It just tastes like a yeah. I mean, unfortunately, I don't like tootsie rolls, so <laughs> maybe a little sweeter than a tootsie roll. <clears throat> A little more sugary. A little plasticky. Oh, <laughs> <does> not boating. <laughs> it's not boating well for the ratings, huh? Mm-mm. All right. Well, what do you think? Do you have a number in your mind? Yes. Okay. What? You go first. Three. Mmm. Mmm. Definitely in the growth category. I went and like spit it out and vomit, but I one hundred percent. Will never choose to ever eat that ever again. <laughs> that's but you like Tootsie Rolls. Yes, but those that's that is not really that yummy. Yeah, it wasn't yummy. Well, I'm not going to give it a three. I'm going to give it a four because I didn't think it was gross, but I didn't like yeah, it. Yeah, that was gross. I didn't like it. All right, so I have noticed that the ladies, you know, Julia last week, that the ladies are very. They're very, it's either like in the great or gross category. There's not a lot of in-between with the ladies. Okay. What color do you want to do next, sweetheart? Okay. So let's do. Let's save the original for last. What do you say? Right. Yes. Yes. I agree with that. Okay. So now we're done with the dark brown. So let's do like maybe, let's do the pink one. Okay. All right. I'm going to do four again. Which one is this one again? So pink is strawberry iced donut. Strawberry iced. All right. Which has potential. I, I tend to like strawberry iced donuts. Let, let's see. Here we go. One, two, three, go. Are you chewing into the microphone? I have my AirPods in. No. I take it out and put it in my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't do that. Hmm. It's weird because I use that chapstick. (laughs) 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 You know, I don't really taste strawberry, which is weird. I thought I was going to. You know, I think it tastes like what I think perfume would taste like if you were to drink it. Yeah, but lipstick. So, do you have a rating? Yeah. Okay. I give that a two. Oh, you're going down. Yeah, because that's way more disgusting than the one I just ate. Yeah, that was pretty gross. I'm gonna give yeah. it. I'm gonna give it a, a three. Oh, you're going down too. I'm going down too. I'm not going quite as far down as you are, but it that definitely went into the gross category for me. <clears throat> yeah, for sure. That was pretty gross. All right, I'm gonna grab these. Uh, 
brown with brown flecks on them. It's the cinnamon okay. apple filled. I'm going to do four of those as well. You have cinnamon those? Cinnamon apple. Yeah. yeah. You, you have those handy? Yep. All right. Here we go. Oh, wow. Mm. Okay. All right. Ooh. All right. Yep. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> so, uh, ooh, help us, Lord. Uh, you don't know what just happened here, and that's good. Um, I don't want to influence your rating. So, what, what, what did you rate that? I actually rate that like a four because those were actually pretty. They weren't great <sighs> by no means. You've but get, they were good. I would eat them every now and then. No, you wouldn't. Now, I'm not going to run to a good... Yes, I'll promise I would. But oh. I know for a fact you don't like them. <laughs> I, I spit them out of my mouth. <laughs> I'm glad this is not a, a video cast. Wow. That that was horrific. That, really? I actually thought they were pretty yummy. It, it was true. It's a one. It's a one. It truly... <laughs> I, I don't even know what it tasted like. It just... Like trash. It just tastes like... <laughs> grossness in my mouth all right let's try this uh oh uh, this is not going well uh, we are saving the best the potentially best for last so i'm just yes. praying there'll be some redemption there so this one is the glazed blueberry which i love glazed blueberry donuts so uh okay this is like the brown with little white flecks on it okay all right here we go <laughs> oh wow okay mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. help us lord oh lord we're gonna have to do better on episodic voice all right sweetheart <laughs> oh, how's it going how's it going over there so i give that a Oh wow! Because it wasn't terrible. It was, but it wasn't yummy. It was so terrible. Did you spit that one out? Yeah, too? I did. But I'm going to give it a two. I'm, I'm not going to take it all the way down to a one. Because oh. I mean, I, I it, it was just terrible. But yeah, it's the a blueberry two. Blueberry and apple. Yeah, I couldn't taste. I really couldn't taste blue. The blueberry taste to me, it just tasted more like. I don't know, like syrup maybe. Uh, ooh, it was it was just really bad. Um, all right, well, uh, Jelly Belly, Krispy Kreme. Well, we did save the best for last. One yes. of my favorite things in the whole world is an original glazed Krispy Kreme donut. I mean, it, it hot. It has to be hot. Though. Hot. Hey, but I I will tell I will tell listeners a little secret. If they are a little stale, just a little bit, and they're not hot, if you take them home. And you put them in the microwave for literally like five seconds. No, don't do 10 or 15. It'll get, it, it'll ruin it. But just like five to six seconds and get it out real quick. It'll be like Kevin. It'll be just like it came out of the, anyway. So you're welcome. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Send your offerings to ryanafrench.com. Okay, here we go. Uh, <laughs> all right. This is drum roll and original glaze. Here we go. Okay. Hmm. 
Mm. Oh, man. <laughs> That's funny. Well, you didn't like it, did you? Yeah, it's literally disgusting. <laughs> so, what's your actual rating? A two. Really? Almost a one if I keep chewing. Really? <laughs> yes. That doesn't taste original glazed, period, at all, not even a little bit. So, cool. I got a little hint of donut there. <laughs> I mean, the sugar is definitely there, and that's the main ingredient of a Krispy Kreme glazed donut. But oh my goodness. I'm actually going to give that a four. I mean, a four? Yeah. Hey, I mean, that's disgusting. No, it's way better. I mean, in comparison to the other ones, that was like heaven. No, oh my word. It was like a little taste of... was by far the best. Little, ugh. It was like a little taste of heaven. No, so, it's not even close. But four is still not a good rating. I'm still putting it pretty low. So, oh, all right, let's do this. Okay. Take all of them together and try to rate the whole. Like if you were going to put all oh, no. those together and rate the bag itself, what what rating would you give the bag of Krispy Kreme? Oh, I don't have to do it right now. I don't have to get one of these to need it right now. No, 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 no. Oh, just, okay, good. <laughs> just take all of those. Ra- <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> just take all of those <laughs> ratings and try to give the whole bag a rating. Um, probably a, a three. Yeah, I agree. Three. Yeah. Gross. That was an epic fail. It was an epic fail, wasn't it? It was. All right. Well, we're gonna have to do better, babe. (laughs) That that was disappointing. It was. (laughs) It's not what I thought it was gonna be. We'll have to get regular, like actual donuts next time. Oh, praise God to that. (laughs) See, I told him you were anointed. Well, I love you, babe. Thank you for being on. Love you. You're the best. You're the best. (laughs) Yeah, you can hang up now. (laughs) Bye. Bye. It was not hard, but rather easy, standing on the glittering edge of truth. Of this thing I am almost persuaded, he gestured with an elusive wave of the hand. And with that unholy utterance, a heavy silence blanketed the thronging crowd. Just like that, the chasm between error and eternity widened its dark, gaping mouth. Yet, self-delusions are only illusions that become more elusive with each passing year. What is truth, the tyrant cried, while neurotically washing his blood-stained hands. But the truth was a man standing tall before his gaze with thorns pressed against his brow. A god-man king who refused to win his kingdom with swords or mechanisms of man. Are you a king? The petty tyrant sneered. To which the god-man king replied with ease, My kingdom is not of this world, and anyone belonging to truth listens and obeys my voice. The seed thudded against the soil, 
but some rock, some thorn, some unseen hand snatched. Little did the tyrant know how close to the warm, glittering edge of truth he stood that day. A wisp of wind, the chirping of a phone, the struggle of a long day ever pulls our minds away, away from thoughts that matter beyond the scope of this finite earthly world. There is no truth, but this one truth, that there is no truth, they shout from ivory towers. They shrug and smirk at their own paradoxical claims, knowing something isn't quite right. Yet they stroll into the darkness without pausing to examine the glittering edge of truth. There are fakes, and fake fakes, and fake fakes of fakes, but it does not diminish the diamond's gleam. Some follow truth with doubts, others follow lies with faith. Which is better, the prophets ask, to which the crowds respond, we have no answer except to follow our feelings forward. Forward, into the darkness their feelings lead them into pits of despair formerly unknown. A sudden light appears between fanciful dreams and the eyes of a boy who has never known joy. In seeking pleasure, we've only found pain. In seeking love, we've only found hate, he cries. He looks to the stars for the first time in forever. And at that moment, he is not alone. This boy hears the cosmic heartbeat and feels the breath of the God-man-king move across his skin. This is it, the moment we each will find before we die, an otherworldly encounter. The forlorn boy closes his eyes and cries, Am I really standing on the glittering edge of truth? He was, and you will too. So when that moment comes, just know, eternity depends on what you do. Thank you.